You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We start with an encouraging update on the respiratory virus season in BC. Even though health officials say we are not out of the woods yet, influenza infections across all age groups are falling. Richard Zussman joins us from Victoria with the latest. Richard? After weeks, Chris, of RSV, the flu, COVID-19 going up, and in some cases steadying, it now seems to be going down, and that could provide some much-needed relief for those who work in our healthcare system and those trying to access it. Pressure easing. We have seen a very unusual season where it's been compressed from what we usually see over several months in uh, November, December, and we have seen a decrease. Flu positivity rates the lowest they've been in months at 8.2% in early November, 27% in late November, now just 4.7%. COVID-19 hospital emissions on the decline as well, now at an average of 22 per day, down from 37 a day last week. All of these pieces together tell us that we're slowly decreasing the same thing across time. And really, I, this is, is thanks to um, people stepping up and being vaccinated. Across the country, flu cases down 38% in just a week. But what is hanging around is RSV. Historical averages are a positivity rate of about 8.8%. Right now, 14%. Uh, I do expect it to continue. It's leveled off and we'll see it coming down. Um, thankfully, uh, it's come down in children. The province continuing to stand by the decision to not put in wide-ranging additional restrictions, insisting a mask mandate would only work if done in conjunction with other measures. While we know we cannot stop all transmission of viruses, even with broad measures like masking all the time, and stopping gatherings and travel, and we know these measures have very important negative health impacts too. The number of people in hospital across the province has gone down as well. A peak of 10,226 patients system-wide a week ago, down 120 to 10,106 as the province continues to do surgeries. Our hospitals are busy, even historically busy, and people can be assured in spite of those circumstances when they need hospital care, they will receive it. All right, nobody wants to be too hopeful, Richard, but based on this new information, does it mean we've hit the peak for respiratory illness season at least? It does seem that way, Chris. Let's walk through those three viruses. So we've seen a lot of influenza A here. Dr. Henry says prepare to see influenza B, but it is less severe, so that's a good sign. In terms of RSV, she mentioned it, that we've seen it waning in kids. Again, a good sign, and we expect, based on trends, for RSV to peter out in the next few weeks. When it comes to COVID-19, what the province is seeing right now is relatively steady with, as Dr. Henry describes it, a good basis of protection. All right, that sounds good. Thanks very much, Richard. We'll stay on the COVID topic for just a moment, bringing in Keith Baldry right now from Victoria for more. We also learned a little bit in today's briefing about the new Omicron subvariant today, Keith. Yeah, the so-called Kraken variant, uh, really on the rise in the United States, 40% of the cases last week. We had 12 cases detected as of a few days ago, uh, days ago, but Dr. Bonnie Henry today revealing a new number and not a very high number of the new cases of Kraken. Here she is. 
To date, we've had 24 uh, uh, confirmed cases. So those are ones where the test has been done and we've done the whole genome sequencing that shows it's this specific subvariant. So that doesn't mean that's all the Kraken variant that's existing in BC. That's just the cases that are found. But it consists of about 5% of the cases right now compared to about 95% of the cases with Omicron. A couple other statistics. Health Minister Adrian Dix releasing today. Uh, you heard him talk about surgeries. We hit a record high surgeries of more than 7,400 in the week, one week in December, the highest ever performed in BC. And we might exceed that sometime in January. 1.7 million people, more than 1.7 million people have received the flu vaccine. That's a record high as well and also encouraging parents seem to getting their kids young kids vaccinated just 22 percent of kids under five got the flu vaccine in december that number is now up to 35 percent and climbing all right that'll help thanks very much keith all right. a flood watch is in effect for several regions of the south coast and for all the details let's bring in senior meteorologist christy gordon christy the rain might be easing a little bit but the impact on rivers is going to continue at least for a little while Absolutely. So this evening, we still have another maybe 5 to 15 millimeters of rain on the way. But as you can see here, we're coming close to the back end of the system. It will ease off overnight. Despite that, look at how much rainfall has fallen across the region in the last 36 hours. So this is as of about 4 p.m. today. And keep in mind, these are for the cities. Away from the cities and through the mountainous regions, we've seen in excess of 100 millimeters of rain. And we're seeing close to record-breaking temperatures. So we're seeing significant snowmelt. All that moisture is coming down through through the tributaries and streams. As of earlier today, 11 a.m., we have now have a flood watch for the east coast of Vancouver Island, Sunshine Coast, Howe Sound, as well as the metro Vancouver region. But the impact on the rivers will be delayed. We could continue to see the potential peak of these rivers into tomorrow because it takes a while for all that moisture to come down through the tributaries and streams. Hard to believe we're talking about flood situation, Chris, when just two weeks ago we were talking about drought across the area. Unbelievable. It's those wild swings we've been told to expect, too, isn't it? Thanks very much, Christy. And we'll check in a little bit later for the full forecast. Right now, though, there's growing hope that the Stanley Park miniature train can be brought back to life. A new park board commissioner tells Global News they are committed to getting the train back on track as soon as possible. But that doesn't explain why the train fell into such neglect in the first place, despite, as Jordan Armstrong found out, some community members who say their offers of help were ignored. Stanley Park, 1968. The monkeys are long gone, but the train remains today. Although it has seen better days. We still don't know why Park Board management allowed the beloved attraction to decay to the point it was deemed unsafe by Technical Safety BC. Park Board General Manager Donnie Rosa unavailable for an interview. Global News has learned Park Board staff received offers of help from community members, including some with industry experience, to try and keep the train on track for bright nights. However, there was a feeling from some involved that the Park Board had already decided the train would not be running. While board staff remained silent, we are hearing from an elected commissioner who represents the ABC majority on the board. We are all very committed to the Stanley Park train. We all see it as a really important part of the city um, and a beloved attraction. Oh, she says the board has found an engineering firm to do a total assessment as required by Technical Safety BC, 
While trains of the same make and model operate all over North America, Stanley Parks is among the oldest and runs on a slightly narrower track, meaning some parts have to be modified. We are hopeful to get it up and running as soon as possible. Uh, Easter would be great, um, but we don't know at this time, and we're waiting to hear back from that report. Other Stanley Park mainstays say they feel it when a neighboring attraction goes down. People come to the park uh, not just for one thing. You know, maybe they come to the park for a walk or they decide to stop at a concession for a cup of coffee. He's hoping the park board can regain control of this runaway issue because for generations of Vancouverites, the idea of a Stanley Park with no train is just bananas. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Well, the city of Vancouver is hoping to hire a nonprofit or other social enterprise to help clean up the downtown east side. The new contract would replace a previous deal with an advocacy group that didn't work out. City crews currently run their own sanitation operations, but as Kristen Robinson shows us, they say it's not enough. Sanitation crews are removing up to 3,000 kilograms from Hastings each day. And the city is looking for a nonprofit or social enterprise to help improve cleanliness, clear a safe path for pedestrians, and reduce fire hazards. It's very, very detailed cleaning. Uh, they're using, you know, brooms and, and rakes and, and getting into the corners and removing needles and smaller debris. Using 450 grand from the Union of BC Municipalities, a request for proposals is out for a six-month public realm cleaning provider. Last November, the city ended a similar $320,000 contract with Van Du, claiming it wasn't focused on street cleaning. The city's 2022 budget allocated almost $12 million for street cleaning. Council also approved more than $2 million in annual street cleaning grants. But the sanitation boss says that program can't add Hastings without reducing service to 22 BIAs. This is a need specifically for the Hastings quarter that we, we felt was important to uh, have a separate RFP for. Former Councillor George Affleck says it's curious the city is delegating a job its crews already appear to do. The best analogy I can think of is with my kids, if I tell them to clean their bedroom, I want them to clean their bedroom every single corner. I don't know, it's not like I can delegate that to somebody else. Clean your room. All the needles go in here. The contract will also provide job opportunities for people who face barriers to traditional employment, like Richard Young, who carries naloxone. We do wellness checks because there's right. a lot of people sleeping on the street. And we stop and we, we look to see if they're breathing. The cleaning is, is the major component, but the other component of this obviously is to community build. While there was too much community building with Van Du, this time the mayor is confident staff will hire the best service provider. Sometimes we have glitches and guess what? It's, uh, you can't expect perfection all the time, but it's how you react to it. And in this situation, uh, the service levels weren't being met, and so we made a change. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Nearly 200 families in Kelowna are suddenly scrambling for childcare during a time of shortages after their daycare announced it was shutting down. They've been told that Building Blocks Daycare will be closing in just six weeks because the building is slated for redevelopment. The building was sold in 2021, but parents say they were assured by the operators they had a long-term lease until 2025. There's written emails with this information sent to parents. So for it to just come out of the blue that the daycare was going to be closing was an absolute gut punch to every single parent. What are we going to do? Like, I am a single mom. 
Like my mom, I'm, like it's just overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. The owner of Building Blocks isn't prepared to go on camera, but says she's just as devastated as the parents. She says she and her business partner explored relocation options, but nothing was viable given the economy and the uncertainty surrounding the future of universal child care. Well, nearly two and a half years after fire badly damaged a Langley condo building, residents are still in limbo. Since the fire, repair work has been start and stop, and the completion date keeps getting pushed back. Now, as Travis Prasad reports, as all of the owners' personal home insurance is set to expire, they're being told to lawyer up. July 17, 2020, a massive fire rips through a 49-unit condo building at 197th Street and 56th Avenue. Like somebody threw a fireball at it and it was gone. Residents devastated and displaced. Homeowners say they were told repairs to the building could be finished in 2021. Then it was pushed to May of 2022. Now it's 2023, the condo shrouded in scaffolding and uncertainty. Our last update was we can't make our target of March of 2023 and with no end date in sight. These residents feel CanStar, the company doing the repairs, is dragging its feet. There's another building that was burned six uh, months after our building burned. That, that building is along 208 and 80th, so that has now come up to the ground. Residents aren't buying that delays are due to labor and supply chain issues. Somebody has to be held accountable, and if CanStar can't get the materials, they can't get the laborers, then that's an issue. They either are not paying their employees or they're not ordering in time. While residents have been shut out of their units for the past two and a half years, what has been going into the building this whole time are their mortgage payments and strata fees. We also have to pay for owner's insurance just in case something else happens during the restoration that we still need coverage for. In a statement to Global News, CanStar's president says the fire damage was extensive and required significant repairs, which have been complicated by the large size of the complex and supply chain issues. We understand the frustration and inconvenience this has caused, and we apologize for the delay. We asked CanStar for a new completion date, but didn't get one. It'd be really nice if they could start speaking to us as people that have been through something as opposed to people that are an annoyance. Homeowners have learned there could be more insurance woes with restoration work not accounting for renovations made before the fire. They're going to put it back to spat and anything I want to change is out of pocket. Yet another setback for frustrated residents not ruling out legal action. Travis Prasad, Global News. Coming up, terror in small town B.C. Citizens are sleeping with bats and bear spray and guns at the ready. How Dawson Creek residents are fighting back against crime and disorder and what RCMP say about the vigilante justice next on the News Hour. What a ride for a new mom who had to give birth in the backseat of a taxi. The hero who helped coming up later. And vaccine injuries are rare, but they can be life changing. This man's struggle for compensation coming up later. Right now, though, Dawson Creek RCMP say they've arrested a pair of prolific offenders in the B.C. Peace region who they allege are responsible for a number of break-ins. They're part of a spike in property crime and other disorder that residents say they can't take anymore. And as Amadagahi shows us, they're taking things into their own hands. It's just got to a point where we don't longer feel safe. In the northeastern city of just 12,000 people, growing public safety concerns appear to be boiling over. 
Fed up with having valuables stolen, some people living in Dawson Creek have at times taken drastic measures through a watch group called Citizens Take Action. We've recovered or have helped recover multiple, multiple stolen vehicles, ATVs, just a ton of stuff, like well north of a million dollars in like 60 days. This is just one example given to city council in November. One of the citizens in the group identified a stolen vehicle on the highway coming into Dawson Creek and notified others in the group. The group responded by following the stolen truck to the Petra Pass card lock where two men left the stolen truck and were picked up by a second truck. The truck's driver rammed a group's member vehicle to try to get away. The citizen group says repeat offenses by known criminals have led them to lose confidence in the RCMP and the justice system. The situation is serious enough. A big welcome um, all the way from Vancouver. That BC's Attorney General was recently summoned to a Dawson Creek City Council meeting to take questions. A huge concern of mine that somebody's going to get hurt you know, because people are getting frustrated that they feel that their rights uh, have been taken away, they're not being protected, that the criminals are being uh, released. And the citizens are on edge, afraid to open doors, afraid to go to sleep for their possessions being stolen at night. Um, citizens are sleeping with bats and bear spray and guns at the ready. Police stats confirm the increase of just reported crime in the small community. We're not a vigilante group, we're concerned citizens. We make sure the RCMP are doing their job properly. Still, even the group admits to sometimes be forced to operate in a gray area, especially when police are slow to respond. People are on the edge and it's going to turn good people into bad people because when they react to something like that, they are now the person that's probably going to end up in jail because they're going to do something that um, is illegal. Emadagahi, Global News. Up next, an injured driver who simply won't quit. They've rigged this game to be that they, they win all the time. Her drawn-out battle with ICBC and why she came to Global News for help. Plus, a mother fighting for her boy's life and how an MP from B.C. is trying to help. Good evening and good news. Traffic is easing off in both directions at the Patello Bridge after an earlier closure plus a crash at the north end. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. An update now to a story we brought you last night about a woman and her well-documented fight with ICBC. Tashia Wong was injured in a crash that wasn't her fault, and ICBC says it's doing everything it can. But as Sarah McDonald reports, Wong's documentation suggests otherwise. When you're in a crash through no fault of your own, it's reasonable to rely on insurance for coverage. It has dramatically changed everything, uh, every single thing in my life. That's what Tashia Wong expected when her car was totaled by a driver who ran a stop sign last May. She's been unable to work at full capacity ever since. But instead, she says she's been burdened with a new job, 
She never won it. It's a full-time job dealing with them, and I just need the money now. These are all the doctor's notes that I've gotten from all of my physicians. Wong has found herself fighting an exhaustive uphill battle with ICBC. Her claims and her care continuously delayed or denied. They haven't paid any mileage, but they also like have been like, oh, this one, why is this doctor so far? They're like, oh, there's a there's a doctor way closer. And I'm like, okay, well, I have a history with this doctor though. And like, this is my GP. As she joins a growing number of British Columbians feeling failed by the no-fault insurance model, championed by now Premier David Eby. We knew that when we shifted to the new model uh, of a care-based model, where the focus was on rehabilitation and treatment, that there would be challenges that would come up. But some of the challenges she's encountered, Wong says, seem avoidable. I know that they're 100% trying to like just wait me out like, like they have been everyone else. ICBC refused an on-camera interview with Global News on Friday, one day after providing a detailed statement claiming to be committed to Wong's care. But Wong has since provided meticulous contradictory documentation, months and months of claims, receipts, and careful logging of mileage and doctor's notes, which seem to refute much of what ICBC told Global News. It's been nine months and they haven't paid like any of it. We have some of the best benefits in the country, some of the lowest rates in the country. Our public auto insurer is uh, breaking even. But at what cost, as crash victims like Wong continue to live in financial limbo? Sarah McDonald, Global News. A B.C. MP has taken up the cause of a young Iranian man who is on death row for protesting that country's regime. As Nagar Moshtehedi reports, the MP from Cloverdale, Langley City, is part of a growing movement trying to save lives in the strife-torn nation. You don't have to understand Farsi to feel the pain in this mother's voice. She's the mother of 22-year-old Iranian protester Mohammed Qobadlu. He's been sentenced to death, his execution reportedly imminent. She's pleading outside the Rajai Shar jail about 20 kilometers from Tehran to save her son's life. Robotlus suffers from bipolar disorder. His mother says he's been denied his medication. We've had no updates today on, on his status. Cloverdale Langley City MP John Aldag is Mohammed's political sponsor. Mohammed is the same age as my son, and so I can relate as a parent. It is absolutely terrifying to think that um, you know, in, in anywhere in the world that somebody's child could be taken uh, in prison without a fair trial and, um, and be sentenced to death. Kobalu is one of hundreds facing the same fate. I've had that trauma. My brother was in under death row for five years. Maya Malikpour spent 11 years campaigning for her brother, Vancouver resident Syed Malikpour, who was once on death row in Iran. They put me in solitary confinement for uh, more than two years. Arrested in 2008 after visiting his dying father, locked up on spurious charges and tortured. They tortured me day and night. The key to saving her brother's life? Speaking up. We have to be their voice. We have to support them and help them as much as we can by raising awareness. No more condemnation. Words are empty. We need clear red lines, clear action for these reactions. Human rights activist Sushant Zaganapur says the Islamic Republic is trying to test international backlash. Canada, he says, should respond with more action, like sanctioning judges and prosecutors carrying out these death sentences. It's extremely difficult to tolerate that people that are demanding their basic freedoms will be snatched out, out of the streets, will be 
tortured into confessing into something that they didn't do, and we're all going to just watch them be hanged publicly on television. Hearing Muhammad Ghobadlu's mother two nights ago outside of uh, Rajeshar prison, screaming at the top of her lungs, feeling the imminence of what this illegitimate process will lead to, the death of her 20-year-old son. Nagar Moshahedi, Global News. Coming up, stealing time, the case of a work-from-home accountant ordered to repay her former employer for hours she didn't actually work, and the software that caught her. Plus, a man paralyzed after his second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. He finally gets some financial support and the long wait he endured. Extra delays on Highway 1 through Burnaby. There's a stalled semi slowing down traffic eastbound before Kensington overpass in the middle lane. Traffic is slow from the Cassiar Tunnel. Through a charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Hewison in the Global Traffic Center. A BC woman not only lost her job as an accountant, she's also on the hook to pay back wages to her former employer over something known as time theft. Employee monitoring software installed by the company showed she was misrepresenting the hours she worked from home. Catherine Urquhart has the details. Countless Canadians are now working from home. And while those of us doing so may think we're escaping the boss's watchful eyes, think again. Tracking software may be monitoring your every keystroke. And if you're cheating, it could cost you. There's different levels. There's ones that can see exactly from a screenshot perspective. And there's other ones that basically just kind of log what programs that you're using throughout the day. Tracking software called TimeCamp formed evidence in a recent ruling by the Civil Resolution Tribunal. It determined a BC accountant must pay her former employer $2,600 after software showed she engaged in time theft. In over 20 years of practice, I have never seen it. Is the employer actually claiming um, as part of a counterclaim for time theft and being awarded? an actual damage award for time theft, as was the case in this decision. Some cheaters may try to get around tracking software, which sometimes is possible. If the employee wants to be dishonest, there are ways to kind of get around it. Uh, if it's kind of just a really basic monitoring, just doing the keyboard strokes uh, and, and mouse movements. For those employees who are truthful but still concerned, this ruling is not about having a lazy day once in a while, say legal experts. She was actually billing time that she didn't work. So that has a dishonesty component. The message, if you're honest and doing the best you can, you shouldn't be worried, even if your employer is tracking your work. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, a man from Summerland has finally learned he'll get compensation from a federal vaccine injury support fund. Julian Schofield has used a wheelchair for the past 15 months. He felt a tingling sensation in his left foot two weeks after he got his second dose of COVID vaccine. Hours later, he was paralyzed from the waist down. 
Doctors diagnosed him with a condition called ADEM, a brief but widespread attack of inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. And after eliminating all other causes, they traced the problem to the vaccine, one of just 50 claims accepted by the Medical Review Board. I think that the government understood that there was going to be risks associated with the, the COVID vaccination program, and they set up the vaccine injury support to, to help with people. But it's not doing enough, and it's certainly not doing it in a timely manner. I'm not against vaccines per se, but certainly in my shoes, um, there is a downside to the COVID vaccine. The government admits serious adverse effects do happen, but they are very rare. Schofield hopes there could be more research on the vaccines to avoid anyone else becoming injured. A memorable trip for an Ontario cab driver and his fare. She need help. She said, driver, help me. First trip of the day was a pregnant woman in labor hoping to get to a birthing center. But the driver quickly realized time was not on their side and the woman likely wasn't going to make it to a hospital. He eventually pulled into a gas station and was getting instructions from a 911 operator while the woman spoke on the phone with a midwife who talked her through the delivery in the back seat. I looked around like this and uh, the baby was in her hand. The lady was quite grateful. She was, she was really happy that it turned out to be me as a driver. Paramedics arrived about five minutes after the baby was born. The woman and her son were taken to hospital, and both of them are doing just fine. Coming up, new bridge, same old problem. Why some say the design of the new Patello Crossing shares a major flaw with other local suspension bridges. And the Canucks begin an internal investigation into the handling of a season-ending injury for Tanner Pearson. That's just ahead in sports. With construction of the replacement Patello Bridge well underway and now visible from the old span, there are growing questions about how well the new bridge will handle our winter storms. As Paul Johnson reports, the Transportation Ministry admits there are few options when it comes to dealing with snow and ice on the cables. Anyone in Metro Vancouver who commutes across the Fraser River is all too familiar with the chaos and frustration that ensues if the Portman and Alex Fraser bridges are either restricted or closed because of snow and ice falling from their cables. Under the right conditions, those cables can shed what many have come to call ice bombs, slamming down on vehicles, making the bridge deck unsafe for driving. Each of those structures experience their own climates. The Ministry of Transportation's Ashok Body says the ice bomb situation was unforeseen when the Alex Fraser and Newport Man bridges were designed and built. But with a new cable stayed bridge now rising to replace the old Patella Bridge, they hope to have more success controlling snow and ice, but can't be certain. Not all structures react to these conditions the same way. So they've had teams go out to other parts of the world that have similar bridges and similar conditions. And it turns out nobody has a perfect technical fix to this problem other than to have to close the bridge sometimes. And here in B.C., they've actually tried a few things. Robots to climb the cables and chisel off the ice. Those didn't really work. 
nor did a plan to try and spray the cables with de-icer. What's proven most effective so far are simple chain collars that get dropped along the length of the cables and shear off the snow and ice. The new Patello will probably use those, but from the outset, they can work to optimize that method with state-of-the-art sensors and release equipment. But don't expect the collars to be foolproof. There will be times where, based on the intensity of the snow or based on you know, the, the type of snow that's falling, it's just the collars aren't as effective as we would hope them to be. Now, if you're an aspiring engineer with your own vision of how to solve the ice bomb problem, Body says the world's cable bridge operators would be happy to hear from you. In Coquitlam, Paul Johnson, Global News. No slush bombs in the immediate forecast, but uh, we'll give you the full details here with a look at the forecast from Christy. Hey, Christy. Hi. Nice to see you, Chris, and happy Friday to you. Um, you know, we can't have any slush bombs. Temperatures are well above seasonal by a good five to six degrees. We're talking about flirting with record-breaking conditions. These were the highs for today, and tomorrow will be even warmer. We could break some record highs tomorrow. Uh, but just to give you a perspective, uh, Saturna Island was one area that did break a record today at, um, I think, uh, close to 13 degrees, as you can see there. But I can't remember. I think it was 13.6 was what it really reached. So that's substantial. That's more like temperatures we would see in March and April, not January, that's for sure. All right. So as we talked about earlier, we're getting to the back end of this system. Overnight, you'll start to see the rain ease off. Tomorrow, we've got a great day on the way, despite we could still see a few showers just through the morning hours. These are the areas under a flood watch. It does not include that Sumas Prairie area, but it does include the North Shore Mountain, Sunshine Coast, House Sound, and the East Coast of Vancouver Island. The reason why I bring it up, we are expecting the um, potential peak of those rivers tomorrow, despite the fact that we aren't going to see any rain fall tomorrow, but it takes a while for that uh, impact on the rivers and streams to uh, reach its full potential. And it, we could reach bank full, so we'll be watching that. And then into Sunday, we've got more moisture on the way. So although we've got that dry day on the way for us tomorrow, we're right back into rain and the pattern is going to remain wet over the next several days. Uh, keep in mind, it's blue Monday on Monday, the 16th, and we're right back into periods of rain. It is tough in these types of scenarios. At least it's mild and at least least we are going to get a bright spot tomorrow. That will be really welcome relief for everyone because as you can see here, the pattern returns to, yes, above seasonal conditions, but definitely wet. Here's tonight's central windows, weather window coming to you from Boundary Bay. Graham sending us that of the very majestic eagle there with dark skies in the background. Chris, back to you. Very regal eagle indeed. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, Squires here with a look ahead to sports. We're going to talk about, uh, well, the Canucks are investigating themselves on how they handled the Tanner Pearson hand injury, which has put him out for the rest of the year. Punching Connor Garland can cost you $5,000. We'll talk about that. Seahawks tomorrow, of course. Whitecaps are over in Spain. And the uh, Surrey RCMP basketball tournament. We'll take a look at that as well. All of that going on, plus satellite debris. Look at this. I look like my aunt's at bingo. All the cards are everywhere. Okay, here we go. Where's your blotter? I remember <laughs> the Dabba Doink or whatever they yep. called them. The Dabba. Okay, something like that. <laughs> uh, last night after the uh, Canucks lost to Tampa Bay, Quinn Hughes was asked about the season-ending injury to the hand of Tanner Pearson. He said the injury wasn't handled properly, but he didn't say by whom, but I'm guessing he meant the organization. This afternoon, 
It has come out that Canucks president Jim Rutherford will investigate how his team handled Pearson's injury. Tanner Pearson needed multiple operations since he was hurt in early November and he might need more procedures for his hand injury and it was a hand injury that was only supposed to keep him out for a month at least. Now last night Connor Garland got punched like McLovin from the liquor store robbery scene in Superbad and today the NHL fined Mikhail Sergachev $5,000 for it. There was no penalty even though the ref was right there. After the game Sergachev actually talked to Garland to make sure he was okay. Garland said the way he agitates people on the ice, he's used to something like this happening. Well, one of the things about tomorrow's playoff game between the 49ers and the Seahawks is it's kind of Seattle's entire regular season in a microcosm. Nobody expected much out of Seattle at all this season. Very few believed in Geno Smith. Very few believed in Seattle's defense. A lot of people thought Pete Carroll would not be able to win without Russell Wilson. But the Seahawks did win enough to get to the postseason, which means Seattle feels no pressure in its game against the 49ers. San Francisco is heavily favored, so all the pressure is on them. People thought we were going to win four games. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, at, at the end of people thought we were going to win four, I guess one dude thought we were going to win zero. <laughs> I mean, if nobody expected us to be here, it's like nobody expects us to win, like outside of our building. You know, we we believe that we can win, but nobody else does. Like, nobody thought that we would be able to do any of the things that we were able to do. Everybody was shocked we even got into the playoffs. And so, I mean, for us, it's like, man, we're just going to go out there and just play free. The Whitecaps are now in Spain training for the upcoming season. One of the things Vanny Sartini has to figure out is, does he want to play with three defenders, which he used more of last year, or go with four defenders instead? know very well the back three so we're gonna focus a lot to 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 work with the back four where we are here in preseason and uh, I would say the first test uh, that we'll have uh, here but also in Palm Springs that will tell us if uh, we can work with this kind of structure. This week is a Serie RCMP basketball tournament which is one of the older tournaments around and it's done a lot of good not just for the programs but also the players who've been in this tournament over the years. For the first time since 2020, the Surrey RCMP Basketball Classic is open to the public. 48 teams competing on the courts and hundreds of people supporting a tournament that began in 1991 and has grown to become one of the biggest basketball tournaments in BC. It's not about the number of teams, it's about the quality of basketball. Surrey basketball was not extremely good at all at that time. The game started to grow and the tournaments began to feature some of BC's best ballers. White Rock Christian won the tournament 11 times between 1999 and 2013. More recently, Tamanois and Samiamu have won six of the last eight. But what's happening on the court is only half of what this tournament means to the community. It's a positive note on our city and it took 31 years to kind of build it to where it got that notoriety, but it's been like that for a number of years now. To me, the most important thing is developing character and, and quality. And um, we've had some really good stories of kids that because of basketball, it's it changed their way of operating and changing their life. The athletes who may have potentially gone down the wrong road is very successful because they're staying. They've engaged. It's not just about their team, it's about the bigger picture. It kept me out of trouble. Um, all I wanted to do was play basketball. You know, your friends are on the team, so you guys all hang out, and instead of going out and doing dumb things, you're in the gym. This year's final four of Fleetwood Park, Pacific Academy, Southridge, and host Ember Creek will all be competing for the title of Surrey RCMP Classic champion. 
you always wanted to be in the tournament and you thought it would be nice to be in the finals. On top of the memories of the glory days, there are other aspects of the game that leave an impression. The skills that are learned on the basketball court, the friendships, the relationships that are formed, just stick with you throughout your entire life. You don't really see any results right away, but like tiny wins over time, they kind of add up. You keep doing something for long enough, you'll get better. Sweet. I was just watching that I know. sweet pass at the very end of and the highlight. And actually it got cut out, but the shot was made. That's good. Yeah. That was fantastic. Uh, all right, we're back with Satellite Debris right after this. Stick around. Our happy Friday to you is Satellite Debris. And we start off with a commercial from France. We've done some before from the TV station called Canel Plou. Uh, this one involves a nosy neighbor who finds out one of his neighbors has Canel Plou and makes up an excuse to watch it. Oui, euh, bonjour, euh, je pense que vous devez avoir une fuite d'eau parce que j'ai mon plafond qui est inondé. Mais monsieur, vous habitez au-dessus Eh, je sais. Donc, euh, ce serait une fuite qui monte Voilà, c'est ça, une fuite euh, montante. Enfin, c'est pas possible. Ben, si, si, c'est possible avec la, la montée des eaux, en ce moment. Et vous avez le numéro du syndic Non. Super. Vous pourriez les appeler Euh... Sinon, parce que je... Attends, je me disais, vous avez peut-être du sel à me dépanner, du sel de, du, du poivre. Je cherche une rallonge électrique qui permettrait d'étendre le linge. It was kind of... It was kind of creepy funny. Yeah, kind of like the cable guy. Yeah. Creepy funny, yeah. Okay, so uh, two from uh, Beyond Meat Jerky. Mm. You act like you're not excited to see 16-year-old you. No, I am, I guess. What are you eating? Beyond Meat Jerky. It's good, made from plants. Ew. Want some black licorice? Same color as my soul. Ew. You don't understand us. No! You've evolved. So check your snacks. Yo, you embarrassed to see high school quarterback you? More surprised. Sort of. You want pork rind? I'm good. Mmm, beef jerky. Actually, it's beyond meat jerky. It's good. Made from plants. <laughs> I'm about four seconds away from tackling us. You've evolved. So should your snacks. Delicious beyond meat jerky. 10 grams of plant-based protein. From tackling That's us. That's good. That's tackling good. us, yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, one from Volkswagen and follow that up with another beef jerky, except this time it's the one with the Sasquatch. More jerky.
Volkswagen. Jack Links presents Messing with Sasquatch. Watch this. <laughs> Don't mess with other snacks. Choose Jack Link's jerky made with 100% beef. What was that? I have no idea. Was I was the, not expecting that. Was that the normally that. friendly marmot that shot out of there? I'm not sure. It's pretty big a for a marmot. It was pretty big. It was pretty big for whatever it was supposed to be. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Yeah, that's that's, that's uh, no. the beauty of it. All right. Coming. All right. The weekend is here. Gordo, I know you yeah. got plans with your boys as I do with mine. What's going on with weather? Well, we've got a great day on the way for our uh, region tomorrow. We do still have a few showers, likely earlier in the day, but enjoy the mix of sun and cloud. 12 degrees will feel like late March or April, everyone. Mm -hmm. And then we're back into periods of rain on Sunday. So make some plans for tomorrow if you can. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. Go Seahawks. Thanks for watching, everyone. And we'll see you back here on Monday. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.